Hi kiddos, welcome to Dad Feelings, a podcast about fictional father figures. Sometimes, sometimes it's not about that. We just mix things up on here. We like to have fun, you know? We have fun around here. And today, we are having fun with author, writer, activist, uh, God, what else? Substitute goat milker, ex-substitute goat milker? Yes, former. Former. Goat milker. Yes. Uh, and that is the voice of our lovely guest. Asper Bergman, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's so exciting. Um, for sort of a behind-the-scenes view for our listeners, uh, we have been we've been trying to get you for a while, and you know, on both our ends, I think things have been coming up. Um, but we finally have you here, and and I'm so excited to pick your brain about this stuff, especially because we are recording this the day after Father's Day. We are, and I. I have to say that about 65% of the reason that we had to reschedule times uh, in order to get this accomplished is because of dad related (laughs) issues. So it's a, it's a semi legit situation in that way. And just one of the things about having children is that their schedules, when their schedules change, your schedule changes. And when they're, when they need something, you have to do it. There's no, like, uh, I'll get to that mm-hmm. next week, maybe. Like, that's not a thing. Yeah, absolutely. That um, reminds me of something. So I was, uh, the last episode that I did at this show was I went back through every episode that we had done so far because we hit our one-year anniversary on Father's Day, and we also hit our 50-episode anniversary. Thank you. Um, it's, I believe, the paper anniversary for podcasts that hit one year. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, one of the earliest episodes we did was with um, an acquaintance of mine uh, named Justin McElroy. And he was, uh, we were actually talking about Pee Wee's Playhouse. I don't know. I'm sure you're familiar with, mm-hmm. with the, mm-hmm. the, um, and uh, he was saying like, oh yeah, one of the things about, about being a parent and like the, that this came up in that episode was like, uh, you don't get to be selfish. Like you are fundamental. Like being a parent, the experience of that is fundamentally um, burying your selfishness and your desires and needs um, because you have a person who is completely reliant on you, not just for like um, for their survival, but for like their emotional well-being. That's very true. Um, you know, sometimes I think that the that the hardest thing about being a parent is the fact that there are, you just have to do so many things that you don't want to (laughs) do. You know, people say like, Oh, it's hard to guide them or it's hard to help them figure out who they're going to be in the world and things like that. And while I, that in an overarching sort of, long-term goal way those are important things i don't actually find the the values transmission part of parenting to be that difficult or the um or the part where you have to function as the external risk management engine for another person or other people uh that's not the part that i find really difficult the part that i find really difficult is that there are just so many things that you have to do that you don't want to do or that you don't want to do then, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I don't want to handle other people's poop. 
ever, <laughs> you know, which no, if that's your thing, no poop shaming. Like I have no, it's fine. You know, I want to yuck anybody's yum, but it's not my thing. But also just, you know, this morning, my littlest child who is just two woke me up at five fifteen in the morning because he was done sleeping. You know who wasn't <laughs> done sleeping? Me. I wasn't done sleeping. But it doesn't matter. You just have to get up. And then you have to entertain someone quietly so as not to <laughs> wake all the other people in the house for two hours until the next person is awake. And then you can make them all breakfast and get them all dressed and get them all to school. You know, the number of things I have, we're talking at 930 in the morning, the number of things I have already done today would be shocking to me <laughs> of 10 years ago. I'd be like, no way, that's not possible. You'd be dead. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine, honestly. I cannot imagine. And that's something that comes up a lot on the show whenever I have um, guests like you on is like, wow, I ah, the responsibility of having a child is like just unbelievable to me. I have a cat and that's overwhelming sometimes. Um, but you, well, uh, the good thing about children is they learn to do more and more things for themselves. <laughs> that is true. With cats are sort of a it's like a static amount of self reliance. Yes. Um, yes, children increase, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that Very. does seem that does seem like the one advantage. They start off way more way more reliant on you but over time definitely they acquire skills and knowledge and um that's all terribly exciting i imagine to watch that develop it, in it, real time it is actually it really is and all of the milestones are are cool including the ones that didn't know were coming um but watching them master something or increase their level of mastery is always a particular pleasure, especially when when the kid is aware that they've really done a thing and mm. they sort of look at you as if to say, I did a thing. And they can see on your face that you too are, are pleased and proud. There's this little delightful feedback loop that is one of the reasons that when they wake you up at five feet in the morning, you don't lock them in the bathroom and <laughs> go back to bed. <laughs> As you might to a cat. <laughs> as you as you might to a cat. Yes, not as yes. As you might to a cat. Yeah, not that I do that. Not that I've ever done that. No. Um, not that any cat owner has ever done that. No, no, that's horrible. Um <laughs> and one thing that um that I think is is different about um about you as a parent versus uh some of the other guests we've had on is that you've written about um, about parenting um, mm-hmm. in in several different forms, I think. Like most recently, uh, you wrote a book called Blood, Marriage, Wine, and Glitter. That was a few years ago at this point, I think. But it, um, that that is like sort of all about kind of like having a family that is in this sort of non-traditional mode. Is that right? Yeah, I would, I would say so. Um, and it talks about a lot of the different ways of creating family, um, but the experience of of spawning your very own fresh, brand new humans is definitely one of them. <laughs> um, I feel like um, a lot of the 
depictions that I talk about on this show of of fatherhood and of parenting in general are still very traditional. Are there still or traditional? I should sorry, I should say traditional to like a Western context um, mm-hmm. because obviously parenting and family styles differ over time and place. Um, but they are, you know, when we look at a, a TV show or a movie or a book or whatever, it's usually a father um, and it's usually a straight relationship if there is a second person in the picture. Um, mm-hmm. And usually the family unit is sort of this uh, space that's cordoned off from the rest of society. And I think that still is mm-hmm. a very dominant view that a lot of people have is the family is a private space. Um, and I think this goes back to Victorian culture of just like this being a space of respite from the world of shelter from, from capital. And to some extent that may be a good thing, but, but also I think that you run into a lot of problems when, when people see families as something that is like, that are completely distinct from public life and from other kinds of relationships. Um, And I imagine that's something that you, you've thought a lot about just being someone who is queer and who is, raising a child in the context of, um, you know, having all kinds of other people around and, you mm-hmm. know, having lifelong relationships that you don't want to just cut off because you're raising a child with mm-hmm. someone else, right? Um, I, you know, it's there's so much in that question. I feel like it's an entire <laughs> yeah, graduate yeah. seminar to unpack it. Yeah, um, so I'll cherry pick the things that I find interesting to please, talk about please. this morning. That's okay. Absolutely. I mean, one of them is this thing about the innocence of the child and that, that, that children are innocent and that they can be protected. And this sort of whole idea that, you know, within the unit of the, the sort of the nuclear heteronormative family is the way to do that. Um, and, and then the sort of, um, corresponding narrative of the broken home um you know it really there's kind of a there's a big thing there where you know people create um families with children in the in the west you know particularly in north america under these circumstances that presuppose that those two parents and their children will remain a single unit of family-ness. And if anything happens to disrupt that, and it's really like protected and guarded, the boundaries, as you said, of the, the family. And if anything happens that disrupts that, it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and I... I don't understand really why we're still so attached to the idea that, that we need to guard the family so zealously that it should remain a closed space that, that it's better for children for it to remain a closed space. You know, um, I, you know, my husband and I have definitely made some different choices partly because of our values, you know, we're both queer. We both are very enmeshed in queer community. Um, we both have, uh, other long, long relationships with close friends and with lovers, um, that are, that are very deep and very important to us that those people are, 
you know, some of them are around a lot. Some of them are around in very, um, you know, in, in sort of long distance, but, but continually intimate ways. Um, and it, it always felt important to us that our children understood that those people were family. So that's one piece, but also like as queer people who are really involved in community work, activist work, educational work that takes us away and back that takes us out at night and to community events and all kinds of other things as people who you know, our, our way and back and out in the evenings at community events and all kinds of other things. If we couldn't bring our children to conferences, to performances, to community dinners, if they couldn't be in community with us, then we would be sunk, right? One of the things that happens to those heteronormative, nuclear, closed, family-style families is that they often have a lot of difficulty participating in community things unless the community is one where everybody else is also, you know, also has children. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, typically religious community and things like that. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of results to that. Um, Like, for example, we don't have a rule to not talk to strangers, Mm. which uh, is partly because we talk to strangers all the time. Like, that's (laughs) how you, that is literally how people make friends and get directions and participate in, in projects, right? Like, you have to, that's part of the whole point of going to a conference or a community event. So the idea that you say to children, don't talk to strangers and out and talk to strangers all the time, that's just ridiculous <laughs> uh, to me. But also, there's two other sort of important pieces. One is that, you know, because I write about, and, and my husband, uh, Jay Wallace Skelton, also writes about our kids and talks about them, often people know them that they don't remember right Mm. so like they'll hang out together at a conference one year and then they don't the children don't see that person for the entire intervening year and a year later you know the grown-up remembers Mm -hmm. and is like hey stanley hey solomon how you guys doing and the children are they don't remember they have no (laughs) idea who this person is so the idea of like you know i went through a whole thing with my mother one particular thing with my mother that I will <laughs> that I will discuss on the Dad Feelings podcast is that you know she wanted to get the children um, little suitcases for when they go to visit their grandparents, mm-hmm. and she asked, uh, "Oh, do you want their names on them, or do you want their initials on?" And I said, "Put their names," partly because they're you know, one of them is SSB and one of them is SRB. Right. And that just didn't seem like a, right. But partly because, you know, they're learning to read, having their names on things. That's good. And then she called me back the next day and said, well, uh, I was reading an article that says that you shouldn't put children's names on their bags. Cause then people might know their name that they don't know. And they might be able to trick the children into thinking they know them when they actually don't. And then lure them away and do terrible things to them. 
And I had to say, my children have the experience of other people knowing their names that they don't know or don't remember yeah. all the time. Like, the suitcase situation is not going to cause that to increase. <laughs> um, so our family rule is you don't go anywhere with a stranger. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, if you need to talk to strangers, and sometimes you do, that's fine to good, you know, um, but we don't go anywhere with strangers. And the other thing that happens is that when kids are free to talk to strangers, it helps them to develop the ability to vibe them out. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you were a seven-year-old and you suddenly discovered that you were separated from your grown-ups and you had to figure out, you know, how to find them or what to do, you know, you need to know who feels trustworthy, um, who feels like somebody that, that you feel comfortable with, even as a little kid. I feel like giving kids the opportunity to talk to people that they don't already know also comes with the freedom to choose not to engage with people who give them a not great feeling in some way that they may not be able to articulate. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, from a, from a family safety perspective, go right ahead and talk to strangers actually serves our family in its way much better than, than don't talk to strangers would, which of course is hilarious because sometimes people will start talking to the children and then they'll say, Oh, but you shouldn't talk to strangers. <laughs> Stanley will of course set them right immediately. Cause you know, Stanley is seven and their favorite thing in the world is to tell grownups about how they're wrong. <laughs> so, you know. Oh, that's the best. That is so good. Um, Mm, yeah, I love it so much. <laughs> I'm sure that is uh, sometimes a difficult thing to deal with, but I'm sure it's also um, a source of pride. Um, yeah. So actually, sometimes the things that make a great adult mm-hmm. are a little challenging. In <laughs> right. I just remind myself of that a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's you know, it's uh, kids are testing things out. They're they're learning things and. Um, in the long term, it's amazing to to develop those skills early on. But early on, I can imagine like like I think that's actually that the core of a lot of the stuff is like a lot of parenting advice and like and what a lot of parents are want or are told to want is things that ensure compliance and that make it easier um, early on. But those things often end up having really deleterious emotional effects on an adult like the fact like all the things that so many people I know myself included have to work through I think are a result of a lot of parenting advice that doesn't uh trust children or take them seriously I think that's really true I think we often don't trust children and one of the things about parenting is that you have to sort of constantly reassess what okay uh, let me back that up and say for me, sure. one of the things that I have to do all the time as a parent is constantly reassess what my individual actual children are probably capable of today. Um, what they can be trusted with, what they can manage, 
what they're going to need help with, and what's just still not going to happen, even if they really want it to. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, at least at least twice a week, I have to say to myself, nobody ever, while speaking glowingly about their best friend or their their favorite, you know, supervisor, ever said. You know what I love about that person? They're so obedient. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Like having obedient children makes it very easy to manage them when they're little. And that I imagine is great, though never having had any obedient children, (laughs) I really couldn't say. Um, but But the reality of having children who are you know, self-possessed and, and competent and emotionally sort of fluent is that they are, makes them much more difficult to sort of manage and control. Uh, and there are times when all I want is to be able to manage and control that. Like I just need to get out the door. I don't really want to have an extended negotiation about anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our seven-year-old Stanley is clearly going to be working for the United Nations by the time they're like 11. (laughs) Never, every morning is like, you know, the Hague. What about this? What if I did this? Could I do that? What about if the, oh God, just sit down and eat your breakfast. Would you please? I don't need to be discussing the future possibility of whether there might under some circumstances be a snow cone later. And if so, what those circumstances might be, I just need you to put on some socks. How about that? You know, and it's in, in part of me, like there is a part of me that, that loves it and that will go 10 rounds about the, you know, imagined future snow cone. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I appreciate the fact that this kid can make an argument and stick with the negotiation. Um, then there are other moments that I just sort of feel like I just really could we not? Mm-hmm. Could we just not? Could I just say we'll talk about that when we get to it? And could you stop asking? You know, whatever. <laughs> but that's not really that's not how that goes in any way. Yeah. And the the you know, the testing of limits and the and the and the boundaries part. Um, you know, my my eldest Morgan, who is who is twenty two today, happy birthday, Morgan, is uh also went through a very sort of boundary testing limits pushing time as a as an early teenager. I I she didn't come into my life until she was 10. So I have no idea what she was like as a small child, though she advises me that she was perfect in every way at that time. (laughs) So I assume that that must be the truth. Um, And, you know, she needed to figure out her, her sort of, she needed to flex her muscles and figure out how to, how to figure out, what she was comfortable with, what she was willing to push harder for, you know, all those things are, are important skills. It's just that they're very tiring when it's your very own personal children who are figuring them out. Understandably. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, that, um, that makes complete sense to me. So, uh, something actually has, has come up in, in, uh, 
this this conversation that I'm curious about, actually, um, if you are okay to talk about it, which is that when you talk about your kids, um, or at least some of them, you I noticed that you uh, call them they. And I'm curious about um, like how that decision came up and like whether that's something that you face pushback around or, or how you, you know, because I know a lot of people who, who talk about like, um, okay, so I guess as, as a former sociologist, the sort of classic experience of a lot of, I think, progressive people on this kind of topic is, um, is before they have kids. They're very much like, oh, well, it's all, you know, all of this, all gender roles and stuff are all socialization and it's all, um, and we're very progressive and open and we believe in just letting kids do whatever they want. Um, and then when they have kids, they the switch turns off and, and they lose these critical faculties somehow. And they become the kind of people who are just like, oh, well, little Tommy just was so drawn to guns or just like, oh, little Susie just, just needs everything to be pink. And... Um, and it's like they're definitely projecting their own biases onto things, but um, I'm I'm curious, like how that how you sort of like came to that decision with your husband, um, and how people sort of react to that, um, like out in the world. Uh, another another question that could easily be a graduate <laughs> seminar. Absolutely. Great, I'm sorry for um, pitching you these like just just c- complex these balls are just like diving and and t- like turning in the air, but I feel like you can just pick out whatever parts that you appeal to you of these questions. It, no, it's it's super. I I love it. Um so it's it's very interesting. You know, I think a lot of us were perfect parents until we had actual children. <laughs> um, I certainly was. You know, before I had an actual child, I was definitely, I had a very firm list of things that we were always going to do and another equally firm list of things that we were never going to do. And some of them were ideological, but some of them were just the received wisdom of other parents. Mm-hmm. Like, people told me about swaddling. Do you, do you know about this? It's when you wrap your brand new infant up very snugly in a giant blanket. They make like ones that are for this purpose. Yes, like, you know, anything yeah. will do. It's supposed to help them, you know, have the, um, the feeling of security that they had when they were in utero. Many, many, many babies love to be swaddled. They sleep super well swaddled. For the first somewhere between one and four or even five months of their time in the world, most babies love a swaddle. So, mm-hmm. of course, before I had my like very first, you know, here you go, take it home, uh, congratulations to you, incense, <laughs> I practiced swaddling. I ordered a swaddle blanket. I did all of the things. And then we got Stanley, who busted out of their first swaddle at 10 minutes old and <laughs> completely refused to ever be swaddled again. And until the age of about four, refused even to be covered by a blanket to go to sleep. <laughs> right? So, like, some of it is you plan based on what people tell you. And then you meet the actual one that you're dealt. And they really just, 
get more like they are. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I really believe that humans just get more and more like we as we get older mm-hmm. and never is this more evident to me than with children because you know all of mine are exactly like they were at three days old mm-hmm. in in many important ways and so you know to some degree I think that people you know they have principles and ideas and things like that based on sort of an aggregate of the child, you know, again, this sort of imaginary uh, child, and then they get their own actual children and, and you, you have to adjust, Mm -hmm. you know, they all have their ways and their, their peculiarities and their things that they love and things that they don't, you know? Um, And some of them are gendered and some of them are not. My anecdotal experience is that if you give any child a lot of different things to play with they will choose among them from among them the ones that they like and usually those things will be something of a mix mm-hmm. of things that we would traditionally code as boy toys for whatever reason and things that we would traditionally code as girl toys but there are other things that nobody talks about like of of my children, Stanley, the middle one, but the older of my sort of two that I had from the very beginning, never liked toys. I never mm. really wanted to play with toys. Huh. Oh, you know, they were a super physical, like run around, climb, jump, talk to you, sing a song, read a book, and then run it all again, um, kid, until they discovered puzzles and board games. But we literally have bins of toys that Solomon is playing with now, some of which I don't think Stanley ever touched. They just weren't very interested in toys. They were never interested in imaginative play. You know, I know a kid that literally used to every anything was a baby that could be patted and burped and fed and put to bed. (laughs) I literally saw this child put spoons to bed. (laughs) I mean, that was the play that that child wanted to engage in. Um, And Stanley never, never, never burped a thing, cuddled it, swaddled it, put it to bed. Occasionally would try and like feed an undesirable morsel of dinner to a a stuffed something, but mostly no way. Mm. Right. And so there are kids who are just not, very into toys. And there are also kids who, even when given lots and lots of options, tend to skew more toward one kind of thing than another. You know, there's a, a line that I have always loved from, um, you know, a, a Robert Fulgham book. The, remember the guy, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, that guy? Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, there's, listen, you'd have to take any, even even one chapter of one of his books with a whole teaspoon of salt in most cases. (laughs) But uh, he talks, but the line is, you know, some kids, you give them a baseball mitt and they're going to plant a flower in it, Mm. right? Like I could, you can no more get certain kids interested in some kinds of things than you can get them disinterested in other kinds of things. Um, so I feel like I have more 
empathy now for parents who say all little so-and-so ever wants to play with is such and such a thing than I ever did before I had a child and lived through the year of a child absolutely refused under any circumstances to even consider wearing anything with a pocket in it. (laughs) All of a sudden, one morning, no clothes with pockets were allowed. You know, like... It was just, and maybe it wasn't all of a sudden one morning, but it definitely happened over the course of a week where all of a sudden all clothes with pockets were anathema. Mm. Right? And I was like, I don't, you don't even, what's even driving this? <laughs> Who could say? Pockets but are frightening. It was Anything a, could be inside was, of them. Right? I mean, apparently. <laughs> and for over a year, there would there were no nothing with pockets was allowed. And then just as suddenly as it had started, it eased. Um, and then clothes with pockets were permissible again for no discernible reason. <laughs> like small children are mysterious and they have obviously rich and robust internal lives that they have no ability to communicate to grownups at all even if they wanted to, which I'm not convinced they do. <laughs> um, so I think some of it is just that I think for sure, you know, kids get clear messages from their parents about what their parents really feel comfortable with and what they don't. Um, or, you know, their grandparents or other caregivers or, you know, other people in their lives. And, you know, if a kid has access to all the toys, but really gets a lot of, positive feedback and parental approval when they're playing with certain toys as opposed to other toys, well, of course, gonna choose those things and not the other things. And, you know, parents are in turn influenced by other parents. I can't tell you how many times I've been stopped in line at the bank or with my cart in the grocery store by some random stranger who wants to know if one of my children is a girl or a boy because their outfit makes it difficult to parse. <laughs> I'm like, who are you? <laughs> what? Oh, well, why God. are we having a conversation? Why did you come over here? Right. You, oh, you just, you just came along to share a thought that you happen to have had about <sighs> the fact that you found it confusing that one of my children is wearing both a pink and yellow pair of leggings and a truck on it. And so you had to come over, not to congratulate the child on their fashion sense, which (laughs) I would feel okay about, Mm -hmm. but to query me somewhat in a somewhat hostile tone about if this child is a boy or girl and why am I dressing them this way like I've clearly failed regardless um, yeah. so, so I am not susceptible to that because I have long since stopped receiving other people's memos about my gender or the gender of anyone else sort of if it's not issued by the person whose gender is under discussion then I just sort of take a thank you drive through <laughs> attitude to all of it. Yeah. Um you know if somebody says to me, henceforth, 
you know, I want you to use this set of pronouns or this is my gender, then I, I take that very seriously. It takes up all the seriousness I have about the gender of other people. And so when third parties try to register their feelings about it, I just am all out of, of interest in that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I am, I am, I am pretty resistant to strangers attempts to police me about, or to shame me about my children's gender expression or their behavior or whatever. But I think for some parents who have not had as much like deep, you know, queer and trans training as I have had, it's harder because, you know, people can be horrible and they have lots of dire predictions about how you're definitely ruining your child. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, true story, even with all of that, um, when Finley, who is seven, announced to us that they really felt like they, them pronouns were the right choice for them um, and that they didn't really feel that attached to either the category of boy or the category of girl, I had a hard minute. Mm. And when I say minute, I mean like nine months um, where I had, I had a lot of concern that people would think this was something that we had done to them. Right that we had made them afraid to be a, some particular gender or that we had corrupted them in some way or that there was some essential thing about our child raising that had caused that, you know, I mean, it was not a, it was not a nice, it was not nice for me. Um, and I tried hard not to act it out on Stanley, but it was difficult. So, you know, for a long time, we definitely referred to Stanley by the gender pronouns that you would typically use for someone of their assigned sex at birth, and then got a pretty clear memo about a year ago that it was time to use they, them pronouns. And, you know, I, and at first it was, I, you know, sort of wanting to try that out them saying, you know, can, can you and Abba say they and them for me? And we sort of said, yes. And, uh, and then it became a more global, uh, initiative as it were. Um, Morgan is, is 22 years old and is, you know, um, clear at least for the moment about her gender identity. I don't, I don't foresee shifts, but who could say, um, you know, and, and she's been clear that she and her are the pronouns that, that she uses. So I feel comfortable about that. And, you know, the littlest one was assigned male at birth and statistically, um, who knows, but you know, the (laughs) odds are sort of point to the idea that, you know, most people are, not trans or not non-binary. Most of them are, are cisgender. So, you know, sort of go in him for now. And, and if we get an update on that, then we will, we will respond to it appropriately. Um, but I also feel like 
children are are very much you know simultaneously they're creatures of the moment you know i'm a ninja pirate yes and you're the best ninja pirate i have ever seen and <laughs> you know there's this but there's this thing right where because sometimes they say you know when i grow up i'm going to be a ballerina astronaut firefighter cat doctor mm-hmm. and so we're sort of like oh, okay great we don't take that very seriously in large part because we as adults know that the amount of professional training a, a ballerina, astronaut, firefighter, cat doctor would require would be, um, you know, would be logistically very difficult. Well, also Jackson so, Galaxy already kind of has that on lock, so. Who does? Jackson Galaxy? The Cat Whisperer? Sorry, no. Okay, we'll look him up afterwards. <laughs> okay, well... Um, you know, but, uh, but it, it causes us to sort of, I think, treat children as though they are basically frivolous creatures mm. who don't really, who can't really be trusted to talk about what they want or what they're to do. And partly that's because we don't think it's possible to be a ballerina astronaut firefighter cat doctor mm-hmm. but what if we acted like it was you know they're really serious in the moment sometimes and children you know by the time they're five or six they know the difference between what's real and what's imaginary mm-hmm. um there's sort of a threshold about that and if you read you know child development books there's a there's a whole bunch of information about how you know as children approach the the threshold of six years old they really become pretty clear about what they're imagining about and what what's real for them. But, you know, I don't, I am perfectly comfortable with the idea that I can take a child's assertions about their gender seriously now without feeling like I necessarily need to assume that's how it will be forever. Um, and, you know, I I don't think that, you know, I think culturally we have this idea that if you pick a position and never change it, that makes it somehow more valid yeah. or more valuable or more real. Like that the person who has been married once for a long time is more successful than someone who's been married to three different people. And the person who's had the same career for a long time or the same whatever like we value we value that kind of consistency so much that i think for some people they end up feeling stuck like if they need to change they'll be considered a failure or they'll be considered a dilettante or they'll be considered to not really know what they're doing Mm -hmm. and uh i i'm I'm hard at work trying to root that idea out from my, from my reality. And I'm assisted in this, not only by my children, but by my husband who, you know, particularly does research around what would it be like if we, if we worked with children and trusted the things that they tell us, 
you know, he does amazing, um, he does this amazing exercise with kids in schools, uh, to talk about, help them sort of show and talk about where in the school they feel safe and where in the school they don't. Mm-hmm. You can do it with kids as young as four or five years old, little kindergartners. Um, he gives, shows them like a big map of the school blueprint style, you know, with things labeled so they can see this is your classroom, this is the library, this is the cafeteria. And they get dots, a couple of green dots and a couple of red dots. And they're told put the green dots in places where you feel safe at school and put the red dots in places where you don't feel safe at school. Mm. And even the littlest kids are very able to communicate where they feel safe and where they don't. And at every school you see, if you start to see real patterns, mm-hmm. um, they're not always the same pattern, right? Like in some schools, there's a big crop of green dots in the library. Because the librarian has created a really safe and welcoming space, or you'll see a big crop of green dots at the nurse's office, or right, like it's not always the same places. Um, and the same with the red dots. Some schools, you know, the cafeteria or wherever it is that the kids have lunch is pretty green, and some places it's just a forest of red. But the kids really know; they know how they feel, but also their circumstances change a lot. Their experiences change. And so their conclusions change. They learn, they change. And so I I simultaneously try and recognize that what's happening right at that moment for them is absolutely real and 100% valid. Mm -hmm. We're holding in the same hand the idea that as their understanding changes, their, their experience or their feelings about something may also change. But that's easier said than done, right? Like in the real world of parenting, I want to value and validate the, you know, no pockets in anything dictum because Mm -hmm. it was clearly very important to that child. But it's also expensive and time-consuming and aggravating to have to figure out what clothes this kid will still wear and to somehow find (laughs) and money and energy to go out and buy like three seasons worth of leggings, you know? And so there's always this thing of you want to really make sure that you invest in the things that your kid says are important, but it's, it is an investment and Mm -hmm. it's an investment that they're, there's not a lot of gratitude, you know, children very often, you know, their, their lived experience is that, you know, they're, it takes a while until they're able to recognize that they're not the center of the world. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you end up like doing a whole lot of things for someone who basically just receives it as their due. I mean, they say thank you because they've been trained that when someone hands them something, they're supposed to say thank you, whether it's a glass of water or a bag of leggings. <laughs> and, you know, but it's not like, no, the, you know, your five-year-old doesn't say thank you so much for spending an entire afternoon that you could have spent 11 teen other ways going shopping for leggings for me because I unilaterally decided the day before yesterday that for some reason things with pockets in them were 
were completely not okay for me anymore. And now I needed all these leggings. So I really appreciate you validating my experience and making sure that I could feel comfortable in my clothes by going out and spending a bunch of time and money to make this happen. That doesn't, you just, you have to do that for yourself, right? You just have yeah. to, you know, and if you're lucky, your, your co-parent, uh, or your friends that you tell the story to, um, will sort of give you some validation for it. Cause it's not coming from the kid. And so that's a very difficult part. That is a dad feeling for sure. You go down the street and around the corner, trying to make things the way your kid says they want them and you produce it. And the kid's like, Oh, cool. And that is the end of that. <laughs> well, yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> Well, maybe that's a good place to wrap up. Um, I know you're super busy and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to monopolize your morning because you are uh, very much still in this uh, on, the, on the ground level um, in the trenches, so to speak. Um, but yeah, this was, uh, <laughs> this was really fantastic. I'm so glad we finally got to talk. I am too. I apparently have a lot of dead feelings. <laughs> So I'm 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 so happy to have been able to to talk about them with you this morning. Yeah. Um now is there anything uh that you want to plug? I know we didn't actually even talk about Flamingo Rampant at all, but um do you want to maybe talk about I don't know if there are any releases coming out um with that or if you have any other there events are. or books we going have on? A whole, we have a whole set of new Flamingo Rampant books, which will be ready in September. Amazing. Um, Flamingo Rampant is our uh, racially diverse, feminist, LGBT-themed publishing company where we make children's picture books, uh, all of which are... Um, all of which are sort of designed to address the fact that children's books about LGBT kids and families are, are often very boring. It's kind of, some people have two moms and that's not terrible. The end. Right. Like, Oh, thank you. Okay. It's all kind of very special episode. Or if it's not that it's around a bullying or harassment narrative. Um, and, you know, children's picture books have a really bad whiteness problem. 93% or something like that of children's picture books feature white kids and families. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so uh, on the premise that I was pretty sure I could do better, and at least I probably couldn't do worse, I um, uh, Jay and I started a a small publishing company focused on making fun, interesting, exciting children's books with beautiful illustrations that are um, full of, you know, pirates and space and fairies and adventures and, you know, all of the things that kids really enjoy reading about, you know, interesting, fun stories that problematize queer and trans kids or families that just sort of show them as, as a thing that exists in the world. Um, and you know, it's, Flamingo Rampant is probably my biggest dad feeling. Uh, 
in many ways because it got started in part because I couldn't find books that I was prepared to read to my child before bed. They were all just so sad. Mm. You know, all the books featuring uh, kids with gay or lesbian parents were sort of, you know, people, kids got made fun of, the kids had a hard time. It was all very like, this is a terrible thing or why don't I have a dad? And the ones with trans or mm. non-binary um, kids in them were even worse. Uh, and so I just started to feel like, what would it be if I had books that I could read to my children before bed in the sort of crucial before bed, snuggle up together and read period that were fun and frolicsome and exciting and that really validated families that look like others and the ones in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and then was able to say at that point, you know, like good night, sweet dreams and actually mean it rather than, you know, hear three stories about people like me and you and all the people that, you know, being, bullied or harassed okay sweet dreams (laughs) right I mean yeah it's funny but no but but it was also hard yeah I I bet so so we started this publishing company in part because we realized there must be a ton of other people with the same experience and also because we wanted kids to get comfortable with the idea of LGBT people from a from an early place, from a beginning place, you know, um, that, you know, the hard part is that there are a lot, there's a lot of violence against grown trans people, particularly against trans women and trans women of color. And so another thing that really cropped up for us was what would it mean? Like there's nothing by the time 25 year olds are attacking other 25 year olds, there's nothing, there's nothing to be done. I can pray and I can send money. I can, I do those things, Mm -hmm. but they're not preventative. They're just ameliorative, right? They, They just come after the fact, like what would be preventative? And part of what we were able to realize is that normalizing the idea of queer and trans people, like in exactly the same way that one normalizes the idea of the ocean, right? Children from, from Wichita or Edmonton read books with the ocean in it mm-hmm. and they never have seen the ocean, but it's just prevented presented to them as a lovely thing that you will experience at some point in your life, if you're lucky. And we wanted to show LGBTQ kids and families in a way as a lovely thing that you will experience at some point in your life. If you're lucky. <laughs> um, so that when those children grow up, and experience and have that experience, it's not alienating, frightening or scary or new. It's just, oh yeah, I I have read about this and this part of my imagination is already populated. And, you know, perhaps these people are actually superheroes, like in that book I read that time when I was a kid. <laughs> um, so it's, 
it's a it's a it's a project that's very close to my heart. And if if people are are curious about it, they can go to flamingorampant.com and read about the books that we have in print, which are there's eight in print and there's six more coming in September. Incredible. That's so amazing. It's a pretty fun people should definitely check those out. And uh you can be found online as well, I, I imagine. Bergman.com. Great. And on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the things. All the ones. Uh, I am all the things. I'm just Esther Bergman. I've completely failed at having a secret identity. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's good. Um that's that's so great. Um well again, yeah, people should definitely go go check out Flamingo Rampant. Um I have uh seen a couple of the books and they're so great. Um it's such a a difficult weird space to work in and i'm so glad that that you're one of the people who was taking on that challenge thank you i am too uh well i uh yeah i guess i just want to thank you one last time for coming on and um, thank you super much i really appreciate the invitation yeah it was a lot of fun and i hope we have cause to run into each other in the future soon i hope that too take good care you too bye kiddos Dad Feelings is hosted by Merrick Kay and produced and edited by me, Nick Bravo. Dad Feelings is a part of Stay Me, the world's only podcast network. We're entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron of Stay Me at dadfeelings.com support. Our theme music is Swell Content by Speedy Ortiz off their album Foil Gear. Thanks to Car Park Records and Sadie Dupuy for letting us use it. Please mention us on Twitter. We're at DadFeelings and at StayMeanCo. Or rate and review us in iTunes. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening.